Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 70. I think a big thing is just getting pride out of the way and willing to listen to other people. I think having partners is really good for that. I think having mentors is really good for that because we all have things in our operation that we don't like talking. And if somebody tells you they don't, they're lying to you. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. You're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating costs. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy-to-follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, They can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at noble.org slash grazing. It's N-O-B-L-E dot org forward slash grazing. Be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you. On today's episode, we have Michael Vance of Southern Reds. He is operating on 100% leased land and grass genetics. I think we have an excellent show for you today, and you're going to enjoy it. First, before we get to it, 10 seconds about my farm. You know, I hate to say it again, but it's still kind of hot here. Uh, I plan on planting a few cool seasons. Last year, we had a drill. It's not a pasture drill, but an um, old drill we used, and I used it to plant some. I had varying results, partly because it was just so dry. This year, we're coming into this part of the year in much better shape. Thinking about just broadcasting some and seeing if I can get the cattle to improve the contact with the soil so they'll sprout. Jump over to the Grazing Grass community. Let me know what you do. And before we talk to Michael, let's jump into a review. The review of the week is from Great089. And they said, I keep coming back and stop here first. This is the one podcast I keep coming back to first when searching for something to listen to or learn. They have great diversification of interviewees, so many little bits of knowledge, and great hearing the different perspectives. Well, great 089, thank you for leaving us a review. And if you've not left us a review, we'd appreciate it if you would. It helps get the word out about our podcast. That's enough of that. Let's get to why you're here. Let's talk to Michael. Michael, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited to have you on here. I'm excited to join in. I don't I don't get to do these very often, and so I hope I'm able to contribute something. I, I know I've got quite a few friends that that listen in, and some of them even even somehow knew that I, this was coming up, maybe. And 
so they're even excited to listen once this hits and so i hope i'm able to drop some things that are helpful to other producers because you know we're we're all in this together and learning from each other and so i look forward to you know maybe giving a little bit of my insight that'll contribute to to other people wonderful that's that sounds great michael let's just start out tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation my, my wife and i we have three kids we've got a currently in a in a kind of a different operation we've got uh, two partners one of our partners is uh largely into ca- him and his wife are largely into cattle that's cooper and katie hurst and they're based out of south mississippi and then we've got another partner jonathan batarza and his wife and they're they bring more of a business mindset and help us with the financial side but both very much they're financially contributing and then they also contribute in a managerial way to our operation and so we're blessed with having a, a good relationship of, you know, partners. And then we, we run a, a grass-based operation. We try to be a hundred percent forage and we run on a hundred percent lease land. I originally started without anything. We didn't have any inherited land, any inherited equipment. And so naturally before it was even probably popular, we, we had to learn how to be low resource, low input operators. And so we've always had to think outside the box. Over time, we built up a, a seed stock red Angus operation. We've been really hammering away at that for a little over a decade now. And, and, and we've also, we've got commercial cattle and we, we do some, we, we raise some replacement heifers based on grass. And then currently we're doing some crossbreeding, some kind of neat composite stuff, you know, for here in the subtropical climates. And, but mainly our deal is about enterprises and about raising cattle on grass, low input, low resource, and try to really think about things outside the box from a business perspective. It's been kind of a long time getting to where we are now. And and we are based in Texas. We we lease ranches on the north part of Texas, the east part of Texas, and the central part of Texas. And currently we've got three pretty sizable operations. And so we're, we're kind of spread out. We don't have very much labor, as in not almost none, <laughs> a little bit of part-time <laughs> help. And, and we hire some day, day help when we need it. And so we're busy, but uh, we're blessed. We are very much blessed with good landowner partners that I think are key in this business. And we're very much blessed with key cattle enterprise partners as well. And, and just so thankful for, for those opportunities. Wonderful. It does sound like you have a, a lot going on there. Now, you mentioned you didn't come from a farm background. No, I, I did. I did come back from a farm background, but so, but we didn't inherit any, any land um, or equipment or anything. So we grew up farming had some cattle and stuff but my my dad passed away actually when i was in high school and so that kind of lost the 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 link in the change so to speak and there were three of us brothers and we pretty much had to what little we had we had to sell out at that time or as he was getting sick but it, it that instilled in me the want to, to 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 get back in it at some point and so it, I mean, even starting in college we got blessed with opportunities to work for some pretty innovative people and just been you know really blessed with opportunities along the way and you know, good Lord's been good to us and given us opportunities to continue to do this and giving us a passion for it. So, oh, very, very nice. Now, I think you mentioned you were grad school at OSU. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I got an undergrad in animal science and ag economics from Mississippi State. And then I, after a few years of working on ranches, I realized that I really want to learn more about business and really handle the financial side. And so uh, I went back to the Spear School of Business there at Oklahoma State, where they, they allow you to do some things. I actually, did most of that on the ranch and it was a great program to go through and, and to really learn the business side and things that I would say that I probably apply more so than some of the, some of the other things uh, that may, I may have learned in undergrad, you know. So how'd you get started once you got out of college? You were working on ranches up here. 
I probably got my first start with, I had opportunity to partner with some guys and buy some recip cows and put some, I guess if some guys are doing some show cattle and some bucking stock, they needed cows to put embryos in. And, and, you know, I, I was looking for an opportunity and luckily there was a banker that believed in me and I bought a potload of cows and put embryos in them and I was able to flip those with the embryos in them to the, the owners of the embryo and, and sell the calf off. And a lot of people at that time were probably buying more cell open cows and putting embryos in. And I, you know, at that time, pears were pretty cheap. I bought pears and put the embryos in them and I made an agreement to where I could keep that cow until she weaned off the calf. And then I'd, I'd sell them the cow with their embryo in it. And, uh, just, you know, I saw some inefficiencies in it and, uh, I was working with a reproduction company and, and was able to partner with them a little bit on it. And kind of, it started there. I had other opportunities to kind of partner with people that had leases and different things and put in, you know, I even started my, my seed stock operation. I was able to partner with a a family that I'm still real close with. They let me put some embryos in their cattle and that got us our first red Angus seed stock cattle on the ground. And I just took advantage of whatever opportunities we had at the time. And then, uh, had opportunity to come down here to Texas and manage a ranch for, for two brothers. And they gave me opportunity to partner with them, kind of grew with them for a little while. And then eventually bought out the partnership with them. And, and that's where we are today. But along the way, we've just been blessed with good relationship, you know, relationships that we still have and we still carry on. And, you know, good people, but just, you know, different things, life happens and, you know, different ups and downs and, yeah. and you get opportunities to move or change or whatever. And so now we're, and now we're in this phase where we're, we're leasing ranches. We, we've been pretty steady. I guess the last three or four years, we've been kind of doing the same thing and, and kind of seems like we've really become a lot more sustainable with our model and our, our current business model. And it seems like it's something that we, I think we're going to stick, stick with as long as, as long as we're able to. When you got those first seed stock, were you thinking at the time, 100% forage, we're going grass-based? Yeah, actually, at that time, we were already uh, grass-based. That was the reason, that's a good question, because that was the reason we actually went and got the genetics. We found some genetics we liked up north, and we knew they needed to be acclimated to the south. And we knew they were the right body type for forage. They They were moderate cattle, had big guts on them, a lot of rib shape. Those cows would hustle during the winter. But... We really needed to adapt them to this country, to this higher moisture grass. And we knew there were some things that, you know, we would have to just kind of, you know, you know, kind of let mother nature have her way with them and, you know, really put some pressure on them. And, and that's what we did. I think the first calves were born in 2012. We wanted to be grass from the get go. I mean, that was the whole point was to, you know, we look around the country and there's just not very many really good grass, truly grass operators. Everybody claims to be a grass operator. Everybody <laughs> claims their bulls are forage efficient bulls, but. When you really filter through, there's not very many. And it's disappointing, honestly, because there's a lot of times I chase rabbits and I come to find out, well, that guy's feeding as much as the next guy is. He's just trying to hide it. And what we found was there's just not very many genetics that'll look good on just pure forage, especially if you're making them grace some pretty tough forage at different times of the year. And so, you know, that that was something that we thought, you know, over time I've gotten some confidence in doing. It took a, a little bit to get there. You had to be a good grass manager and you really had to get your genetics at work. And so it took a few years to, before we had very many good ones. And then it seems like every year we had a few more good ones. And then now it seems like, I mean, the percentage that we're keeping back and the percentage that are staying true to the end is just getting more and more so. And, and I think it really helps, you know, and I think a lot of people in, in our circle have this mindset. We're not looking for a great bull. You know, everybody's looking for that next great one. In the, in the seed stock business, 90% of guys are looking for that next great, to be honest about it, there, there ain't many great bulls. There's not meant to be many great bulls. I want to, 
I want to, you know, I tell people for myself, I want a hundred bulls that all look alike and that breed the same and that breed consistency. And when we started realizing that, like, we're not, we don't want a great one. We want a hundred really good ones that are just consistent, uniform, don't have issues. And when we, when we realize that we want it just like a guy wants his steer calves or just like a guy wants his heifer calves, that one great one is, is just the top side of an hourglass distribution, so to speak. And he's going right. to breed average. Mo- most of the time he's going to breed average. And so we want our breed average to be really good. Cause I want, you know, like this past year at a bull sale, we'd have guys show up and, and we knew their budgets were small. They'd tell us, you know, I, Hey, I don't know if I'm gonna get a good bull ball. I don't know if I'm gonna get a bull ball. My budget's kind of small. We're like, man, if you really look through there, there's a lot of good bulls out there. You know, like, I mean, if, if you, if you stay here long enough, you're going to find a bull in your price range and he's probably going to breed the same as the ones that are above your price range, you know, and, and that's not probably the right thing to say as a guy that sells bulls, but <laughs> we're, we're into, you know, we're into raising consistency and, you know, I tell everybody, I want our bull sale to average to say small. I just want to, you know, raise more of them. And, and that's kind of where we're, we're going to be, you know, we're honestly in this business, people can't afford to, you know, when I see bull sale averages that are seven, eight, nine thousand doesn't even make any sense to me because the the average commercial man can't justify that. And honestly, right. that the average bull that's getting sold for that, he's not worth it. And so I want I want my bulls to be profitable for the guy that's buying them. If they're not, we're we're not going to be sustainable and we're not doing anything to help anybody. We might as well cut all their nuts and and make steers out of them. Because, you know, we're we're in this to be profitable. But the only reason we do the bull deal is to is to help spread gen- genetics and and what I tell people is we're get, we're we're selling hope. We're giving guys a chance to improve their program. And if we can't do that, we need to quit and go do something else. In my opinion, and if we ever get to the point where we feel like we're not adding value, we will quit because that's what keeps us driving. At the end of the day, you know. And on your bull sale, before I, I jump back to the other question, you had a bull sale in April of this year. Was that your first one? And what's your plan for the future on bull sales? So that was our second sale. And we actually had a few heifers this year. Yeah. And we were, it's kind of a tough time. This year was really tough for us because we're all in still in pretty heavy drought. And so and herds are majorly reduced. We had a lot of cust- current customers that didn't come by this year because they've, they've got the bull battery they need and they've got reduced herd sizes. So they need less bulls. And if your bulls hold up, they're going to last a long time. And they're, you know, they're not going to, guys aren't going to need to buy every year. And so right. we've kind of hit a little bit of a lull, which is, that's okay. But our pl- our current plan is to have another bull sale next spring. The only reason we wouldn't is because we are in this transition to a new ranch. And actually we want the bull sale to be at the new ranch. And if we have a hiccup along the way, trying to get set up over there, I, we, we will have a plan B. But currently we are planning on having a bull sale next April. And, and the reason we... We have a sale a little bit later than a lot of people because we do raise the bulls 100% on forage. And when I say forage, I want that to be a grazing, a green route. There are drought times where we'll have to hay them or something. We did a few years ago. We really don't want to do that. That's not, that's not the way we operate. And even if we do that, we're, we're not going to give them enough hay to, they're never just going to be standing a lot eating hay. We just don't do that. We would just not have a sale before we did that. So. That would be the only thing that I, that could give us a hiccup is if we continue to drought and we have some hiccups on this transition. But as of right now, we think we have a, a somewhat of a pretty good plan to have a bull sale there next year. And that's going to be south of Palestine, Texas, in the kind of east central part of Texas is where we'll have that sale currently. And for your sale and for your seed stock you got started with, you went with all red Angus? Correct. So we started red Angus. Right now we do have some pretty solid South Pole Red Angus composites, and they would be 
they're actually double registered because they're out of registered seed stock from both sides. We're not just crossing them with some commercial cows. And I think there's some value to that. But the other thing that we're playing with a little bit, there's two other breeds that we really think add some value for grass producers. One is Murray Gray. We raised a few pretty sharp Murray Gray cattle and Murray Gray or Murray Gray Red Angus cross cattle. The Murray Gray cattle are probably the best marbling cattle on forage that, that I know exists, at least in this part of the world. I mean, they are, to me, they're the, the, they're the top tier in terms of marbling ability. They're just some old school cattle, old short faces, moderate, good rib on them. Cows have good little udders on them. And so we really like those cattle. We think they add some things. They're almost like a terminal cross for the for the grass-fed operator, but they do have enough maternal in them to really do the things that, that you know, guy can keep some really sharp females, some kind of smoky females. we got some really cool-looking females out of that cross. And the other one that we're really excited about that we're just now really getting some calves big enough to wean out of is we've got some really nice Beefmaster cows we've been crossing with our Red Bulls, and they're more of a moderate Beefmaster, low-milk Beefmaster, and we really like what we're seeing so far. That There's a lot of heterosis there. And so that'll fool some people. I think they'll be, they'll probably even look a little better than what they really breed. But I think for that, for the subtropical climate that we see here in, in Texas and Louisiana, Mississippi, we think that cross will do some things, especially for a guy that's got maybe a little bit too much English and, you know, maybe a bull like that, a half blood, you know, half beef master, a bull that you know really is about an eighth year. We think that, that, that bull may have something to really create some females in the, for this environment. And so we're looking at that. The other thing that, um, you know, we like the centipoles, uh, just can't really find any good ones that we can get our hands on. But, you know, we have a mentality that uh, we we believe there's good cattle in every breed. You know, if, if, if people start getting hung up on breeds with me, I, I kind of tune them out because there really are good cattle in every breed. And I, and I don't even care about color. Like we've had really good Brangus cattle. We, we've still got some really good Angus cattle. We'll have a few black bulls every year. We just like good cattle. And so now that we've, we really got our red Angus where we want them, we're, 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 the last thing we're really trying to critique on them is we want to get them slick, slick. And I mean, slick, like, look oh, like a yeah. centipole slick and, and we're getting there. And then the other thing is just, it's, it's kind of a constant critique on udders. Like I want perfect udders and it seems like but, you never get them quite perfect. We're, we've got them going <laughs> the right direction though. But as we continue to do that, now we're kind of looking at some, we've got them where we kind of want them. Now they're good enough to cross with some other cattle. And kind of upsize them in our mind and so for that guy that likes our red angus but maybe wants a touch of ear or maybe wants a touch of that south pole we've got quite a few customers that that like the south pole but maybe don't have enough confidence in using them as a full blood or maybe they're going to feed them in a feedlot and they don't know they don't have enough data to know how those cattle are going to perform and so we 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 create that half blood for them and that way they can kind of step their foot in water a little bit and and not have a drastic change in calf crop and so, and we've actually seen some really good things out of that cross in terms of the value they bring on a, on a grass carcass in a grass finishing operation. We've seen some value in that red Angus South Pole cross, as opposed to a, maybe a purebred. So, uh, just something we're kind of watching with some of our customers and stuff and, and kind of getting feedback from. And so, you know, if a customer ever calls me, I've, I, now I've gotten to the point where I got quite a few customers. I can just say, Hey, Hey, call this guy. Cause he's doing that. And he may can, you know, give you some real world data, you know? Oh, yes. And very interesting with the different breeds. I'm, I'm a breeds guy. I love all the different breeds and learning about them. So it's interesting. I was wondering what that fourth breed was going to be. Beef master. We just got through using some beef masters on my dad's herd. And then the Murphy gray, Murray gray is 
interesting to me. I've seen only like two or three cows in the wild, but I hear them talked up so much. I'd love to see some more. I've got a good friend down here in McKinney, Texas that has a, he has a meat market and then he also has a really good barbecue joint. And, you know, I kind of learned from him and I'll throw his name out there. His name's Matt Hamilton. He may not like it, but he'll be all right with it. You know, I, I kind of learned about the Murray Gray early on from him. They were, uh, we were actually harvesting some cattle at his processing facility that he had ownership in. And I was asking him, like, what, what's the best grass carcasses that you see come in here? And I thought I had some pretty good ones. And, and I think I still think I did. And he said, the best ones I've seen are, are Murray Gray. And then, you know, come to find out later on, he, he actually, he has a partner that has quite a few of them. And I mean, like a hundred of them and in a commercial outfit. And so Wade McCluskey is his name. Wade and I've got to be good friends. And so Wade really turned me on to the Murray Grays and he was, he's crossing those Murray Grays with our Red Angus bulls. And you talk about an animal that can really finish on grass. I, I'll put them against anything. I mean, I've, they're, they're taking every one of them steers and they're, you know, I think they finished some of them in the feedlot and the ones that are in the feedlot, I mean, they look, they're like the next thing down from a Wagyu. They are tremendous marbling. And, but the ones that they finish on grass are just remarkable. The, the, the ribeyes on them. And so I hope I don't, didn't misspeak for them, but I, I, you know, I've watched what they've done from afar and, and those cattle have amazed me. They really, if you painted them red or black, you would think they're an Angus. They're an old school Angus. They're a real modern cow, just deep body. And so you know, we saw them, we like them. And just like we like our reds, we like, we like some of the South Poles we see and we like some of the beef masters. And, and there's some other breeds out there that we've liked, you know, we found cow that we like, we just couldn't get them bought. And, uh, you know, I, I would, I'd buy into anything if they're the right, if I, if I find them and I think they'll work in our program, I'll buy them because, you know, like I said, we, we think there's good ones in every breed, you know. Now talked a little bit about breeds there. And we've talked about being a hundred percent forage as much as possible. What's that look like on your ranches, on managing your cows day to day? Yeah, so we're blessed with an abundance of variety in our program. We've got introduced forages like Bermuda grass, Bahia grass. We've even got a little bit of fescue, but we've also got quite a bit of native country, a big blue stem, little blue stem, Indian grass. We've got some buffalo, but we're blessed with, with you know, quite a bit of diversity. And so... You know, generally speaking, we're going to be grazing, you know, warm season green grass, and then we're going to graze in the fall of the year, winter of the year, we're going to graze a lot of stockpile. Even Bermuda grass will graze, you know, stockpile Bermuda grass until the first of the year at least. And, and in our Bermuda grass, we overseed it using a no-till drill because we believe in a green growing root year-round. So anytime we get ground that's mostly introduced grasses or what, you know, or call, some people call it improved, we like to overseed those with something green because we think that that not having some some green root in it is unhealthy for the soil and also bermuda grass needs a lot of fertilizer and weed spray and stuff and what we found is by overseeding those you take care of a lot of those issues naturally and so we overseed a lot of different cool season annuals and generally those go to you know like growing calves bulls stuff like that but that's going to be more of a springtime deal you know we're going to start really grazing those in probably late february early march because we don't fertilize a lot if we do fertilize, it'll be in the fall to get them kind of started. But generally, we like to graze those in more of a natural system without without fertilizers. And if we do use fertilizers with the thought to grow more forage, to then put more manure, organic matter back on that soil and to improve the soil, sometimes we'll just plant a pretty poor area and fertilize a little bit just to get something to grow there. And then we kind of kickstart that process, kind of like one step back, two steps forward. And so, but we, we do that to increase our stocking rate per acre. And, and really just to keep those cattle, you know, grazing some, you know, a variety of forages. 
but they're not gra- grazing like lush dark green forages until maybe late april and, and also the other thing we, we do have some uh, pretty good cool season perennials and so depending on the ranch that we're on like our our you know if a spring cabin cow on, on some of our ranches a spring cabin cow they'll just be on stockpile until some of those spring per- those cool season perennials come on and then you know they never need any kind of supplemental hay or anything our fall cabin cows will generally be the ones that we eventually will put on some annuals maybe usually about february up to that they're grazing stockpile which is pretty tough on a wet cow but we like them to go ahead and go through that dip and then we get them on some annuals and if we don't have annuals at that point then we'll supplement them with some hay just because they're they're fall cabin cows and they got to have good forage but generally what that looks like is that'll be unrolling like alfalfa out in stock just to make them eat like in february to eat whatever's left out there we might unroll alfalfa three days a week for them and but, but generally that's a 30-day window tops maybe 45 in a drought like last year i think we did 45 days and that was the the longest we've done it and so it's for a very short window and and you know we're we have a lot of seed stock cattle but we also have commercial cattle and, and we run these cattle um you know, like commercial operators. That's one thing I'll tell anybody that's buying bulls. The guy you're buying bulls from is not running cows at a cow cost similar to what you're running at. You need to find somebody different. You know, like our, our cow cost is under 500, you know, $500 a, a cow a year. And we, we're operating on hundred percent lease ground. And that includes our, our own labor. That's, that's everything. Interest, labor, depreciation, you know, a lot of those things that a lot of people don't want to include that'll really eat you out of house and home. But that's something I encourage everybody to do. Some of these seed stock operations out there, man, if people really knew what their cow co- their annual cow cost was, they would not buy bulls from, <laughs> you know, and cause we were, we were one of those people, you know, we, we made that mistake decades ago. Do you have a uh, preferred cool season mix that you overseed with? In our part of the world, I like things that reseed themselves. My thought is that one of the, these days, and we're already seeing it in some of our areas, I want to get to where we don't have to plant anything anymore. And so I like annuals that reseed themselves. I like perennials if you can get some you know some fescue or orchard grass or something like that started that's great but then texas winter grass down here is really good for that but then ryegrass are a really good improved version of a ryegrass that will reseed itself if you let it go to seed any of your clovers that reseed we're big believers in those so we want to do we want to have ryegrass and clovers in our mix at least until we have enough seed in the seed bank say year three usually year three we might back off the ryegrass we want those in the mix no matter what because they will receive themselves. And then we try to do an early season, like a, like an oat that will grow good in the fall. Ryegrass is going to you know, always be more growth in the spring. So that oat, oat kind of offset it, sets it. And then a lot of times we'll throw wheat, cereal rye, or triticale in there as well. Vetch, uh, you know, we want quite a few legumes. We want at least three to five pounds of legumes per acre, you know, at least in our the first couple of years we plant, I will say some of the places that we've been planting for six, seven years, we just put kind of some cereal grains down because the ryegrass and the clovers come on. So we actually get our seed costs down around, you know, 20, $22 an acre because we're just planting kind of 80% of the seeding rate because we, we know that in between the rows, all that stuff's going to reseed itself because we don't bale it and we let it go to seed. We don't mow it early or anything like that. And so, uh, we don't spray the clovers. And, and so, we want those to regenerate themselves. We just continue to put enough other seed in the seed bank to get a larger stand with the thought being down the road, especially as we kind of, dis- we're, we're always looking to discover more perennial cool seasons. I honestly, and, and this is kind of, kind of take a turn a little bit, but I'm encouraging more and more of these academic, academic people to really look at helping us manage for cool season forages. 
everybody in the world can manage in this part of the world can manage for warm season forages. We can all do that. We can sit at home and that stuff grows, but I want, I want stuff that grows whenever we normally don't have forage. Like my emphasis on what can, what can I do to get forage to grow and to have a green root or it doesn't even have to grow, just stay green during the time of year that we don't have a lot of forage. And so even in our native pastures, we're starting to hit them harder than we used to because I don't want to see, you know, big blue stem and Indian grass so thick and so rank that we can't see some Canadian wild rye. We can't see some Texas winter grass or we can't see some good buffalo grass coming on. And so that's something that we've learned. We're actually managing our, our warm season pastures for cool seasons. So we're actually hammering them a little bit more as far as grazing pressure and just to get them to open up a little bit more to give us more variety. And so you can almost become too good of a forage manager on your warm seasons and hurt the, you know, the, the dip in, you know, in your cool season forages and, you know, in the, you know, in that cool season part of the year. Yeah, very good. And, and getting those legumes in really makes a, a huge difference. I mainly put in some cereal greens, try and get some ryegrass in, but I don't do a very big area. I try and pour boy it and broadcast some. We do a little bit of that too. I like to pour boy stuff. I'd love the idea of just throwing seed out in front of the cows and let them trample it. I do that as much as I can. Oh, you know? yeah. 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 I can remember growing up. We didn't have much Bermuda on some land we had and we had dairy cattle. So dairy cows, a little bit different market. We fed, fed them quite regularly. I, I shudder to think how much money we spent in feed costs growing up because we just fed them, but we'd throw some clover seed and some Bermuda seed on top of the feed in hopes that it'd go through the cow and then sprout up. We did some of that growing up too. And it worked. We did some of that. I remember doing that with some, with some crimson clover and it worked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I bet it was quite the sight seeing my brother and I and my dad out there looking at cow manure, seeing if we got clover sprouting. Now, one thing you mentioned a couple of times, hundred percent lease land. Tell us a little bit about the process of finding land to lease, because that always seems to be the issue. People can't find lease land or they can find lease land. They can't find land to lease. It's interesting because we don't, we don't look for lease land anymore. We, we, we get the phone calls and I tell people that I really don't, I'm going to answer that the best way I know how, but we, we, we've worked on building our reputation and building relationships. This is, you know, and a lot of us know this, you know, if you're, if you're a listener out there, you, a lot of you know this, but it can't be, it can't be overstated that this is a relationship business. The good thing that's in all of our favor right now is that people are really waking up to this regenerative grazing movement. People are realizing, you know, people that may not have, have cattle or, or ranch, or maybe even people that do that are just getting kind of tired of it, or they just use it as a tax shelter. They're realizing the value from a regenerative standpoint for their, for their ecosystem that they own. And so it's given us opportunities. There's going to be a lot of opportunity here in the next decade. I'll, I'll tell you, I, I really believe that the opportunity to lease land is going to increase. I also believe that opportunity to custom graze, um, on other people's land is going to increase because I think there's a lot of people with these high cattle prices that are, maybe have gotten out or reduced their herd. And when they get forged to grow back, I don't, I don't, there's a lot, there's a pretty high percentage of people that are not going to buy back in at these prices that, and, and some of them are just getting over the age where they really don't want to be tied down all the time. We're, we're seeing that more and more into where maybe they still want to do some, you know, some daily checking of cattle or they kind of want to still want to manage their place, but they really don't want to have cows 
365 days of the year. And so, you know, an operator that needs more access to land needs to really think about that. You need to be comfortable putting cattle on trucks. You need to be comfortable having cattle on different properties for just a short piece of the year. You know, we look at it, our cattle like hay balers, you know, we go where the grass needs harvested. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's kind of transition we're in currently we're, we're, we're shipping cattle all over the place here in the next 10 days. And it's just getting cattle to some of our other ranches that have forage because we're in, you know, we're, all of our places are under pretty severe drought right now. And it's just all about getting around, seeing where we've got forage, just had plenty of rest and then getting after it with some cattle. And I think if, if you're not in that mindset, I would encourage you to think about that a little bit because there'll be opportunities maybe for a guy that owns a property that they just deer hunt it. You know, maybe he doesn't want any cattle on there from August to January because they're hunting. Well, if you could get some pretty good grazing from April to June, hey, that's a great value. You're 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 paying for a, a quarter of the year, and you're pretty much getting all the forage that they grew that you know for the for you know seventy five percent of the year at least in, during the growing season. So, and and there, and there are probably quite a few people that look at it like that, but actually building a business model that thrives on that will i think will be very advantageous going forward being willing to work with people that have conservation easements that have different types of i'd say more ecologically minded land ownership that's what we're kind of looking at we're looking for people that have the same view of land that we do that that hey you know we're here to protect it we're trying to partner with those kind of guys and and, and ladies as well that that do that because we think there's value there. We want to partner with people that, that want to see their land improve from an ecological standpoint. We want to, we want to help bring back quail and turkey in, in our part of the world. And we're, and we're doing that currently, but there's people that are, you know, that own land that are looking for somebody that, Hey, grazing can actually help bring quail back. Yeah. I mean, what does that look like? But, you know, think about the percentage of grazers that know how to get quail to come back, you know, that know how to manage grass and it's willing to take the sacrifice, you know, sacrificing that, you know, not grazing that, that grass to get that, that, that short-term profit, you know, you, you know, there's some give and take there. You've got a bit, you know, landowners got to be able to work with you a little bit on price and things like that. But we're, we're seeing more and more of that. And then, and just in general, there's just going to be less people leasing land. I think there, you know, there's, there's a you know, generation that's getting out right now. And, and, you know, there's quite a few of us young guys that are in it, but I tell you, you know, the cow numbers are down and they I, I, I really am skeptical if they're ever going to come back. I think we have seen, you know, this cow herd is going to continue to diminish this year. I, I don't, I don't care what the numbers say. I talk to farmers and ranchers every day and this cow herd is continually declining in here in 2023. And I don't know that the land we're going to, we're not going to have the land capacity to really think of, now think about this. We're not going to have the land capacity as a country to maintain the beef food source that we need here in this country. And think about that. And think about what the that what kind of opportunity that brings to the guy that's still in it. And I really think for for people that are especially maybe in our age category and younger, there's some real opportunity going to be here in the next decade. And even to the point where you know I'm completely against anything subsidized. I don't believe in it. But from a just a lay consumer, I want my government to be paying attention and saying, "Hey, we don't have enough land to raise enough beef. We're going to have to start outsourcing beef." Well, that's not sustainable. So what are we going to do as a country to support these guys that are trying to do the right thing and, and, and are trying to raise beef in the right way? You know, I, I don't know that we need to be supporting every beef producer, but the beef producers that, that are doing things the right way, we do. I think as a consumer, I'm concerned about that, it, just like pork or anything else. But, I, you know, people have talked about that forever, right? Like, we're, you know, we're running out of land, we're running out of land. 
I think we're there. I, I think we're at the cusp of it. And, and I think it's going to be really interesting in the next five, 10 years, like what's going to happen because there's, there's, we've got low numbers. We got low numbers of people that actually want to do it and we have low land. And so I think you're going to see some land get back open back up to grazing because there's going to be probably some curveballs thrown and some advantageous opportunities like the carbon markets for one. That's, that's, you know, that, that alone could change things when all of a sudden a guy that may have CRP and just hunts quail and pheasants all of a sudden goes, Hey, you know, we can graze a little bit of this and we can split the profit with the, with the cattle grazer. We need to find a, you know, a good regenerative cattle grazer, you know? So I'm very optimistic in terms of, of, of grazing opportunities. Long answer for that though. Well, I'm repeating a conversation that we we've I've had with producers for the last three weeks, and, and because we're seeing, I'm hearing some things that I've never heard before, and even from people that you didn't think would ever probably get out, and they're just kind of tired, you know. They 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 bought back in during the last uptick in the market and got caught hanging with those real high dollar cows, and, and a lot of people are sitting on their hands now. This cow market's not following the calf market, and it's and it's I think it's telling us something. Um, and I think it means we're going to be some more sustainable, you know, in, in, a, in this higher market. Well, just to bring that home just a little bit or closer to me, my dad's recently talking about selling his cow herd. Now, he doesn't want to get completely out. So he's thinking maybe we should run stalkers on his place and I can do my cow herd on lease land and whatever that looks like. But I mean, we've ran beef cows. We sold out the dairy in 99. And prior to that, we had beef cows. I was, I mean, I've had beef cows my whole life. So he's had it his whole life. And he's actually, I have to figure out math real quick, about 75. So, but he's thinking, well, maybe, maybe I should sell the cows. And it's not a labor issue for him so much because I do the labor for him. I, I think it's a labor issue. But he just comes down and tells me what he thinks, and then I go do what I want to do. But I try and listen. But that's interesting because he has brought that up lately, so I'm I'm not quite sure what he's thinking right now. Is it he just tired of wintering cattle? He just wants to have cattle during the growing season? Yeah, that's part of it. Then he doesn't have to worry about it during winter. And to be honest, and he does do some. I'm not saying he doesn't do anything. But he does do some, but I take care of a lot of that. But, but last year, we... We were close on hay, and with our management, we got dry. So last winter, it was kind of tight supplies, and our cows didn't winter as good because we went we didn't have the stockpiled forage we normally have. And the idea of chasing hay and purchasing some is not appealing at all. I think he's just thinking if we just had some animals during the growing season on the home place, that'd be enough for him. You ought to work out a deal where you can put your cows on him during the growing season and then use your lease places during the off season. And then you just got one set of cows to check and let him do all the work in the warm season. You can do it in the wintertime, trade it out, you know. I am trying. He's quite ready to let go that much. <laughs> we, we've we done that with some people where they kind of went the stock around. I was like, why don't I just send you cows and you run them whenever you have grass and then I'll deal with them. I'll deal with them on, and bridge it on the other side, you know, and. We, and we'll, we'll empty a place and let it rest and send them, you know, and, but that's a little bit outside the box thinking, you know, it, it, I tell you what, anytime I can check one place instead of two, I try to figure out a way to do it. You know, I, I'm, I, I love it when I empty a ranch. It's the best feeling in the world. Okay. 
no cows here to check. I can let the grass grow for a little while. I don't have to come over here. And it's, it's a, it's a good feeling. You know, you know, if you go over there, you just go in there over there to enjoy the ranch. You know, you don't have to necessarily do any work. <laughs> you know, we, we, we rarely get to really do that. Yeah. I, just the, the moving of one group versus another group is great. My problem with lease lands on doing that is having pens. Of course, I can throw up some pens and do it, but there's always resource shortages in there. I mean, it's water, it's pens, it's shade. I mean, it's, that's the, you never rarely, I mean, there's been a couple of leases I've gotten to where I was, like leases I weren't, wasn't going to take. And then I pulled up and I realized they did have everything. It's like, okay, we've got to figure out a way to make this work. Cause they, you know, like the, the problem is making it work. Every, it's got everything it needs, you know? And so, cause you rarely, you rarely find that. Now, one thing you've talked about, you've been doing this for, for a while now. What have been some of the biggest challenges you've, you've came across during your journey? Oh boy. Where do we even start? Um, I think, I think pride is one. I would say that's probably number one with a lot of us. Even, even when you get confident in what you do, your, your pride can be a downfall. I found that if, if somebody preaches the same story today that they preached 10 years ago, you, you better be careful. Cause I've changed my tune on so many things in our program just in the last five years, you know, five years ago, I thought I kind of had some confidence in what we were doing. And now my confidence is in I, my opinion is going to change. I, and I try to tell people that like, Hey, my opinion may change in two years from now. This is how I feel today about this. And so I think, I think a big thing is just getting pride out of the way and, and, and being willing to listen to other people. I think having partners is really good for that. I think having mentors is really good for that because we all have things in our operation that we don't like talking. And if somebody tells you they don't, they're lying to you. There's things that we don't like. There's things that we don't want to, that we, that we want to improve. There's times a year we, we don't like having people around just because things don't look as good as they, we'd like for them to. I mean, if you, if we don't, if you don't have that, you're either, you know, taking way too good at care of your cattle or something because I've, I've witnessed that, you know, Every year I've been in this business and, and all my friends that are really true to themselves will tell you the same things like, man, you can come around, but man, things don't look very good right now, you know? And it's like, well, that's good. That's when I want to see them because that means you're, you're putting some pressure on them and you're, you're poor boying them a little bit. But I've watched that. I've watched guys that were willing to adapt, that were willing to set their pride aside. And I've watched guys that, that, you know, they, they want to claim that because they've been doing it for this long, they've got it figured out. Hey, we've been you know, we've been breeding cattle for 40 years or 50 years or whatever. Well, that doesn't really mean anything to me. Like, how has your opinion changed over those 40 years? Like, have you, what, what can you say that you do different today than you were doing five years ago? If they can't answer that, mm, that, that means they're, they're their own stumbling block. And so, and, and that would, at times that can be my biggest stumbling block. So I'd say that number one, weather would have to be up there. We, we pretty much manage now, like we're always going to manage drought. And then if we get rain, we, we look for opportunities so that, you know, that can be tough, you know, just transitions. Like right now we're moving from one, our headquarters from one ranch to another. And it's, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of logistics. It's tiring. 10 days from now, I'm hoping that we have a little bit more peace about it just because we're in that middle of moving. I mean, cattle are easy. It's equipment and getting guys lined out and having somebody on that side and somebody on this side. But you know, that, that's a challenge. The other thing I'd say is it's just labor. The thought that, you know, I used to have this thought that, you know, we, we, we could, you know, my first goal was to run a thousand head and we, we got there a long time ago, but I'm really blessed to get there. But what I realized is that, um, you know, you think with economies of scale that, that you would, you would make more money, but the problem is a low quality labor can really cost you a lot of money. 
And so now it's about increasing our number of cattle per hour labor or per unit of labor. And I'm saying that, you know, I'm pretty much the main labor for our operation, but we have, we, we do use, like I said, day help and we have some part-time employees, but I would love to have really good labor because I think we could do some things, but it is a struggle. The guys that are really good are worth more than you can afford to pay them. And, and I've even told guys that like, look, I'd love to have you, but I can't afford you for what you're really worth. And now that's one thing I'm getting excited about with this cattle market. It's not about making more money. I just want the chance to be able to hire, hire some high quality guys. I want to be able to rear back and pay the kind of money that a guy deserves to work the kind of, you know, the, the, maybe the hours, not, not just the hours, cause we try not to work crazy hours, but to have the kind of stress that this job can put on you. Cause, cause there's a lot of guys that would love to do this for a living and they're worth it if you can afford to pay them or partner with them or something like that. And so we're looking at some of that stuff and, 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 and that's the only way it's going to be sustainable. You know, I've got three boys coming up, but I'd like to find somebody to kind of help us, you know, in our partnership, kind of help that transition. If, if I was to be in a bad accident tomorrow, I don't want my partners to have to sell out. But, but I mean, right now that's, that's kind of what would happen, you know? And so at least until my boys are a little older, so I'd like to have somebody else there that could kind of bridge that gap that would be worth that, you know, would be worth their salt, but then also we're paying them what they're worth. And so. I'm hoping with maybe a more sustained market, I think a lot of other people are thinking about that too. We, we hope to maybe have some opportunities because right now you have to, when the gas station down the road is paying 17, 18 bucks an hour for anybody. I mean, if you want any kind of quality, it, you know, where does it even start? You know, so. I think that's a hot topic across any industry. I work off the farm in education and, and finding good workers. You know, we'd love to pay them more and keep them but we can't pay them as much as they're worth. Sadly, we, we end up getting some that maybe aren't worth quite as much as we pay them, but the job market's hard right now getting employees. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, at some point, just like in your job, at some point you just need somebody to show up and be there and you don't even care what you have. You got to have somebody there. Like if we go on vacation, I got to have somebody around here to, you know, so yeah, it, it's the same way in your job. You know, at some point you got to have a body, a warm body there and I mean, a warm body is going to cost you a lot of money before they even do anything, you know, so. Michael, I've enjoyed the conversation thus far, but it's time for us to transition to the overgrazing section. So where we take a little bit deeper dive into some of your practice or a practice. And I think today we're going to talk a little bit more about grass genetics. If someone says, so what is, what are grass genetics? What, what do you mean by that? Just by saying that. You hear that a lot. The funniest thing, you can get on Facebook and you'll, I'll see a guy post, you know, bulls and they'll be standing in a feedlot and say grass genetics. You know, I see, you see, you can find that every day of the week nearly. But, you know, what I really think of in grass genetics, I want to see a cow herd that's, that's managed 100% on forage. And uh, I want to see bulls that are raised on forage. Now, I can, you could argue that, hey, if the, the cow herd's raised 100% on forage all the time or, or maybe even 90, 95% raised on forage, then maybe the genetics are there but what i found over time that you can cover a lot of things with feed and with su- any kind of supplementation even even with forage supplementation i mean i see a lot of programs now where I, I drive up and go look at bulls and they're on they're they're getting haylage as as much as they want all the time well, that's not very much pressure and so one i want to see i want to see forage all the time i want to see 100 percent forage if possible there are some places maybe that's not possible you better be careful claiming a hundred percent forage. If you're not, I see that too. I see guys claim a hundred percent forage, hundred percent grass. 
And then they'll tell you in the next post that, hey, they give them a little bit of grain. Oh, we only give them 1% of their body weight. Well, that's only 10 pounds on a thousand pound yearling bull, not, not much feed. But the other thing I want to see is pressure. Like I don't want, I don't, when I pull up, I don't want to see cattle eating haylage out of a hay rain. You know, what are you doing to push these cattle to, I mean, what, what's going to make them fall out of the program if you're giving them everything they need and they're standing there just making life easy? I want to see cattle that are going out and hustling for themselves. It's like even us, like when we supplement, you know, there's, there, you know, like if you give them any more than 10, 10 pounds of hay, like on a, on a mature cow, it'll make them stop and wait for you to bring them something to eat. And I never want my cattle to have uh, what I call a, you know, more of a, I guess, welfare mentality. I don't want my cattle to ever wait on me for anything. I don't want my cattle to wait on me at the gate thinking they're ready to move. I, I used to move big herds of cattle every day. Well, it got to be like a welfare system. They were just standing there waiting at the gate instead of they could have been out eating until I got there. And so we quit doing that because I want cattle that have their own mindset, their own cycle, and I don't want it to be altered by humans. And you see that a lot of, with some of these mid grazing systems that, that and they're great. But that's the down, I think that's the downfall of some of them. If those cattle are waiting on you, you have, you are there then leaning on you to, to help them eat that day. And so, and not saying, telling people to stop doing that, but that's, you've got to realize that I want cattle that, that can make a living with, if I don't show up for a week, I want them to stay alive and to make a living. And so my goal, when we look at grass cattle in our operation, we look and go, all right, what did God make? beef cattle to do he made them to take grass and convert them to a wonderful protein source and at one time that was a perfect system i believe i, I believe at one time that was a perfect system and he, we as humans messed that up now maybe we didn't have the carcass sizes we have today maybe we didn't even have it, the type of beef cattle we have and we definitely didn't have them here you know all these cattle got imported but my thinking and our thinking in our operation let, let that was a perfect system in terms of efficiency low cost and 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 that's the most efficient system there is so anything that i have to do man-made to add to that system we lose efficiency and we also increase error and then we also increase cost usually so our goal is to have cattle that can maintain as much on their own as possible and that's different for different areas with different resources but i want to see cattle that have pressure put on them i want to see cattle that are raised on 100 percent forage and and generally that has a look that, you know, they're more moderate cattle. They're bigger ribbed, got really good feet and legs. They're generally going to slick off on time. This is important. They're going to be able to slick off on grass. I can make any cattle slick and fat if I feed them. You give them enough protein and energy and they will produce oil and they will slick off. You go to a feedlot, those cattle are slick. I want to see cattle because this is a big deal in the Red Angus breed. There are cattle that absolutely will not slick off on grass or not on time. And it's because over time they haven't had enough pressure put on them or they're you know, right now what's happening a lot of these Canadian ge genetics are getting infused. And so I want to see cattle that can slick off on, on grass, on a true grass system. And so those are some of the things that I look for, but generally it's more, it's not even the cow. It's the, you know, I, I see beautiful pictures on the internet. It's like, okay, what kind of program she is? It? And if I pull up and they're just standing there in the rack eating haylage or silage or whatever, it's like, uh, she's probably not gonna work in my program. And I'm not saying that that guy should quit what he's doing, but for our program and for our resources and how hard we are on cattle, probably not going to work or I better be able to get them cheap, bought cheap enough that we can cull a pretty good percentage of, them, you know, and try to try to get them down to the ones that will work. Right. Excellent. said, and through that, you answered some other questions I had that I was going to ask you. But one thing, when you talk about your grass genetics and you're raising bulls now, 
are you AIing? Are you looking for certain AI sires? Or are you doing all natural service with, with your herd? You still doing some embryos? So that's a good, that's a really good question. So we quit using AI probably seven years ago, maybe six, seven years ago. You know, with AI, what we were, we were seeing issues. We were seeing really some really good calves and then we, but we weren't seeing consistency and we oh, were yeah. seeing consistency in our back end calves from our cover bulls. And so, and we had some really good cover bulls at the time. And one day I just said, I'm done with it. I said, look, I want to, I want my best bulls to breed my best cows. And when we did that, our herd changed overnight. And we probably, we just weaned our third set of heifers, I think, that were really the result of that. I mean, I, you, where you really just go, I wouldn't trade these with any, within our seed stock operation. And we, I think we got 80 keeper heifers out of that deal or close to it and, uh, out of a false set of cows. And, um, I'm, I'm gonna tell anybody, and I don't care if you're raising seed stock, I don't care what breed you are. You take the calves that work in your program and you put them back on the cows that work in your program. And there's no better way to get genetics that work in your environment. And I'm a guy that sells bulls, but I tell people all the time, buy bulls for me. At, one, at some point, you need to quit buying bulls from us. You know, use us for outcrossing, use us to add a little bit of something. But at some point, you need to be able to look in your program and go, I can raise a bull better than than he can for, for my environment. Now, a lot of guys that, that don't have their cows right, stuff like that, you don't want to jump ahead on that because you can sure get yourself in a bind. But if, you, if you're doing the right thing and you're putting pressure on those cattle, Generally, I think you've got as good a bulls out there in your program as I probably can raise for you once you get your cow herd right. But you need to be very careful. You need to be a cow man. You need to pay attention what those calves are out of and, and not just pick the biggest calf in the weaning pen. I think that's what nat- people naturally want to do. And we, we don't even do that. We usually sell the, the biggest couple of calves in our program usually sell. It's that calf that kind of flies under the radar that we know his mother, we know his grandmother, and he is just as balanced as can be. We want the calf that is that is balanced and, and just doesn't have really a flaw. It's just, just solid. And that usually, you know, there's trade-offs to everything in these cattle. And so a calf that just blows the doors off in terms of gain, he's probably going to offset it somewhere. Like maybe his mom's got a little bit too much milk, or maybe he's got a little bit too much growth, you know? And so for our program, that's what we're looking for. And, and that's when we change that mentality. Like we just want them all consistent, uniform. And when, when you come to me and, and you come to buy our genetics, you're buying our genetics. You're not just buying one animal. Well, I want the animal you get to breed as true as possible. And the only way to do that is for me to line breed those cattle and breed type and kind and consistency. Michael, it's time for us to move on to our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our very first question, what is your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? Oh, that's a tough one. I honestly am. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Facebook. I think some of the grazing groups on Facebook are probably my favorite outside of reading. I think I, I work, I, I enjoy learning from other producers, like in, in conversation. I would also add to that Nat GLC, the national grazing lands coalition has a, uh, a conference every three years and it has been very productive that one. And then also a grass fit exchange as well, but the grazing lands coalition, just in terms of just grazing and grazing cattle, the last two that I've been to have been pretty eye opening from some pretty good pretty good producers and speakers. Oh, very good. And you know, I don't think we've ever had Facebook listed as a grazing resource, but there is a lot of information there. And as much as I hate to admit, I spend too much time there. But the good part is most of my feed is all groups that I'm part of and and I'm in that group for a reason. So yeah, that can be a really beneficial resource. Our second question what is your favorite tool 
on your farm? Probably my no-till drill. I'm a big fan. Especially, I've got a Great Plains. I've got a we've, we've got a 1206 NT, which is the a true no-till with Coulters, and we just bought a 3010, which is a 30 footer. Because we got a, a ranch, a much bigger ranch with with a lot more open ground. I like being able to plant stuff where there ain't anything growing, and so and I'm not a farmer. My dad, I grew up. My dad and my granddad were farmers. I'm not. I'm a horse guy. <laughs> so and I'm a cow guy. I, I was the guy, the kid that always wanted to be on a horse and hated tractors. But I like taking that drill. And, and and not just for the cattle. I've they're, they're one of the ranches that we're on right now. We brought Canadian geese back in there like nobody's business. I mean, there are so many Canadians staying on that place in the wintertime because we oversee the Bermuda grass. I mean, Bermuda grass doesn't do anything for wildlife outside of nesting if you stop and you have to stockpile it to do that. But you know, it may bring in some grasshoppers for the turkeys or whatever. But you can plant some cool seasons that do amazing things for all the wildlife, not just the cattle. So that's. That's my favorite, probably my favorite piece of equipment because I'm not a big equipment fan. Right. And I would, I would love to have a no-till drill, maybe one of these days. Our third question, what would you tell someone just getting started? Surround yourself with people that do this for a living and be careful with people giving you advice that don't get their, their daily livelihood from this. And I, and I don't mean that as a cut to anybody, but if, if people are giving you advice that, that don't put food on their table doing this, as long as they acknowledge that, and, and most people will say, hey, I, I, I do this inside or whatever, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you. But I think there's some people out there that are in maybe in consulting positions or different positions that don't actually get a check, check from cattle and from grazing cattle. And I think there's some bad advice out there. And I've heard it and I've debunked it over and over again. Surround yourself with people that, that either do this full time for a living or are humble enough to say, Hey, this is what I do, but, but maybe you ought to try that. You have different resources. And and I would say, surround yourself with people that are resource minded and don't just say, Hey, go do this, go do that. That'll ask you, Hey, what are your resources? What can you use? Maybe you don't have a no-till drill. What are your options then? And not just say, Hey, you need to go buy one. You need to go spend 30,000, you know? And so you need to surround yourself with mentors and people that can, cause there are hard days in this business. You know that you need people that whenever things are going wrong, you can call and say, that'll give you some encouragement and give you some advice on how to get through that. You need those people and you need, you know, more than one of them. You need quite a few of them. If you can fill both hands with those kind of people, you'll probably make it. So excellent advice there surrounding yourself by with like-minded people, you know, what do they say? You're the average of your five closest friends. And the other thing you bring up, you know, get advice from people who's doing this to put food on the table. I think that's wonderful advice. Because we have to be careful about who we're listening to and are they really doing what they're saying and it's really going, really happening. And then our last question, Michael, it's an easy one. Where can others find out more about you? So we're, we're pretty, we don't have a lot of resources. Real quick, we believe in word of mouth advertising. So we don't do a lot of advertising. We don't have a website. We do Facebook. We will talk about our bull sale. And our program a little bit on Facebook. We try not to do a whole lot. We'll do a little bit more right up before sale time just to be informative to the people that want to, you know, see videos and stuff maybe before they come out or get a good picture of bulls. That way we don't have to, you know, necessarily answer tons of questions through text messaging or phone calls. But generally, you know, Facebook is it. Or I would encourage anybody. We are always, we always have an open door. We, we are limited on labor. So we've got to have a heads up, you know, because it is hard because anytime that I take time to, show you the operation as long as i have a heads up and, and we schedule ahead of time we love to do it sometimes when it's short notice 
I'm having to choose between spending time with you and spending time with my family. And I used to be pretty quick to, to just give up my family, but anymore I, I don't. And, and I've, I've had some people get upset about that, but as long as you give us plenty of heads up, we, we, we love to show our operation to you. And, and we don't care if it's wintertime, summertime, cattle may not look good. Cattle may look good. You know, we're, we want to be a hundred percent transparent. And so we encourage anybody, we don't, we don't ever shy away from showing our operation. Um, and so feel free to reach out to us. I, you know, I'll get my cell phone number out. You can provide that to anyone and, 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 and you don't have to buy anything from us. We're not about that. We're about relationships and getting no more people. And so, and we, we enjoy it. That's what, I mean, that's what makes this fun. I mean, I'm sure that's the reason that you have this podcast. It's, it's, it's about the people. And so for us, like we, you know, we, you know, I think some people, sometimes you feel pressure when you go looking at a guy's operation. Well, maybe we need to buy a bull or we need to do this. No, like our bulls are going to sell. Our females are going to sell. And if they don't, like I said earlier, we'll, we'll quit and go do something else. But as long as we, you know, God's given us this passion and given us these opportunities, we're going to share it with others. And just as people have shared it with us, you know, we would not be where we are today if it weren't for people doing that for us. And so we owe that. I feel like we owe that to, to everyone else. I mean, it's not like we just all of a sudden are just here and successful. People have blessed us with opportunities. People have blessed us with knowledge and wisdom and with relationships, people we can lean on. And so if we aren't doing that in return, then we're not paying it for it at all. And so we believe in that. And and if you'll give us a heads up, we 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 thoroughly enjoy and we think it's a good investment. And don't feel like you have to have any money to spend to come spend time with us. We we would love to show you around our operation. That sounds wonderful. You know, one of these days I'm going to find myself down there. Yeah, well, you you have an open door anytime. We'd we'd love to show you the place, and and, and may, you can come back and tell tell your viewers. Well, he's speaking truth, or maybe maybe there's a little bit more to it. You know. Well, Michael, we appreciate you coming on and sharing with us. Really enjoyed the conversation. Well, I appreciate you having us on, and I appreciate you believing in us enough to you know lend your ear to us. And I hope I hope that people enjoy this, and and we wish you success as far as this podcast as well. And we're we're listening more now that you've reached out to us, and then. So we look forward to hearing uh, some of the other people that you have on up in the in the future. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. If you've enjoyed today's episode and want to keep the conversation going, visit our community at community.grazinggrass.com. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for past and future episodes. We also welcome guests to share about their own grass farming journey. So if you're interested, fill out the form on grazinggrass.com under the Be Our Guest link. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening, and if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form, and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, 
and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And until next time, keep on grazing grass.